Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. Today, we are talking about the Prince Andrew sexual assault lawsuit a little bit more because there was an answer filed and the media made a whole lot out of nothing, I think. There was an answer filed. We're going to talk about an answer. We're going to talk about what civil lawsuits look like, the procedure that they go through. But there was another motion filed that no one is talking about that is one of the wildest things I've ever seen. It is a pro se motion and it is um, different, but it's filed in this case, not directly related to this case, but it's filed in this case as docket item number 76. It is, um, well, it is filed by an individual that is pro se representing themselves and it is interesting. So we're going to cover that as well because it's interesting and because wild stuff happens in court and sometimes we just, you know, we're just going to cover the wild stuff and not just the heavy stuff. So because those motions are both filed in this case, we're going to cover them both. We're just doing it both. We're doing it both. We're going to cover the answer and affirmative defenses. Talk a little bit about what that means, what an answer is. I've already probably said that. And then we're just going to get into it. This is going to be a little bit late because I was traveling. Um, hello, my lovely friends. I got to see all of my friends from high school for not always, the, you know, not the best reason, but um, was able to be there for a friend who lost her father. And it was, it was nice to be able to see everybody and to be there for people, even though it's hard circumstances and hard times. It's still an odd time to have a funeral. I don't know if there's ever a good time. It's always kind of odd, but it was lovely to see my friends and get to uh, get some work stuff done as well and get some work travel stuff done in Vegas. I will be speaking at a conference in Vegas. If you are a creator, I will have more information for you about that. If you're curious about it, you can always hit me up on social media, but I'm going to be speaking at Grow With Video Live. I'm very excited for that. Hopefully that's been announced officially. <laughs> if not, it's just between us. Um, and then I'm going to be at a live event here in Nashville. Tickets are on sale now. All the links will be down below for Spilling Tea Live with podcasters and YouTuber Zach Peter of Hashtag No Filter and with Up and Adam from Up and Adam. Well, with Adam from Up and Adam. You know, I just call him by his channel name now because that's how that goes. I also got to see them while I was in LA and kind of finalize our details for a live show in Nashville. So if you want to see us do a podcast kind of style recording live talking about all the things and see us in person, you are welcome. Tickets will be linked down below for that too. So all the information, I'll have all the information for you. It's going to be a busy week. Um, it's going to be a busy month. I can't believe it's February. Oof. We should just roll the intro and get into it. We should just away we go. Shouldn't we? Mm -hmm. We should. We totally should. So let's roll the intro. Hey there, welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years, I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. I mean, before we get all the way into it, I should just remind you that if you would like access to the exclusive members-only podcast, I Have Thoughts, and to other exclusive perks, including our members-only live stream, you can join lawnerdsunite.com 
for those monthly perks. If you want a badge on the YouTubes, if the YouTubes are important, you can join the channel on the YouTubes. But if you just want access to the podcast, the podcast only lives at lawnardsunite.com in our Lawnards community. So you can do that there. I forget to remind people and they're like, wait a second, I didn't know you had another podcast. I do. I have another podcast. It's called I Have Thoughts. It lives over in the Law Nerds community. And if you would like to stay in the loop with all the things, you can just text me at textemily.com from your mobile device, or you can just text me at 615-455-3216. That's 615-455-3216. And the links and number will be down below too. If you want to stay in the loop in North America, we have not expanded yet. But if you want to we have not expanded yet. That is all. Let us move on. We should get into the story. My brain is tired. It's going to be like that today. Let's talk about Prince Andrew. If you've been following this case, I will link the other, uh, well, the other video, the other breakdown I've done on this case, where Prince Andrew's motion to dismiss was denied by the court. The argument from Prince Andrew with regard to the lawsuit brought by Virginia Gouffray or Guffrey, I, I, vacillate in how I pronounce her last name, Gouffray. She is um, one of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, was trafficked and is alleging in this case that one of the people she was trafficked to was Prince Andrew and is suing him directly for participating in that. And the causes of action in this civil suit, this is not criminal, this is a civil suit in the U.S., the causes of action that she is suing for are battery with regard to an unlawful touching, and she is alleging that that battery, the unlawful touching, is by way of sexual assault where she was a minor, and the second cause of action is intentional infliction of emotional distress, and that his uh, sexual abuse of her when she was um, underage, knew that she was a sex trafficking victim and that he was 40 years old, goes beyond the bounds of decent society and would cause someone um, intention or emotional distress. And that was intentional infliction of emotional distress because he participated in that. He has denied all claims and we now have a formal answer. In the motion to dismiss, the motion to dismiss was filed saying, hey, Gouffre and Epstein entered into this release where she said, I won't continue to criminally prosecute you if, you know, this is resolved. It was a release worked out with part of a plea deal for Epstein's case in Florida, which involved a financial payment to her in exchange for her not just dropping the case, but also not suing him and a limited amount of others over the same causes of action. In the motion to dismiss, one of the arguments was that that waiver covered Prince Andrew as well. The court said, well, not so much. The court said there's a lot more to be determined in the waiver because the nature of the waiver is not clear. And I did a whole video breaking down the court's ruling. It was a very detailed and legally reasoned through ruling. I quite like the way the judge walked through that ruling and how they were finding that the motion to dismiss did not meet its burden to dismiss this case outright. And therefore, we are at the answer stage. So with a civil lawsuit, and that's a lot of what I cover truly are civil lawsuits, some criminal, but mostly civil. 
With a civil lawsuit, the penalties are monetary damages and sometimes injunctions like in the um, Haley Page wedding dress case where they're enjoining her from using social media accounts and things like that. You can stop someone from doing a thing or you can make them pay. Those are generally the ways. Yes, there are a few other civil remedies, but in general, not jail. Not jail is a civil remedy. Money, stopping behavior, um, enforcing a contract, things like that. So you get to the point in a civil proceeding where there's a complaint. The person is saying, you did this thing to me. I'm making these allegations. These are the types of allegations I'm making. And I'm asking you to pay, go to trial, do a thing, don't do a thing, injunction, what have you. The last injunction I think we talked about other than the Haley Page one was, where else did we talk about injunctions recently? Um, one of the Tiger King lawsuits where Carol Baskin was trying to block Netflix from releasing Tiger King 2, that went down uh, in flames spectacularly. But, but injunction, the possible remedy. I digress. In this case, we've done the complaint. Then you can have a variety of litigation or an answer. A variety of litigation can be motions to dismiss, like a 12B6, which you'll hear me talk about a lot because it makes me feel like I'm in law school again. 12B6, motion to dismiss, failure to state a claim. Law students and lawyers get me. Anyway, failure to state a claim, like, hey, all this stuff that you said, this stuff that you said can't stand. It's not a cause of action. It's, there's, no, there's no there there. You can't sue me for that. Like, stop, go away. Failure to state a claim. There are other types of motions to dismiss for other reasons, including lack of jurisdiction, lack of personal jurisdiction. Um, and like in this case, hey, they've waived the right to sue because of this other release, things like that. So you can have litigation after the complaint for a variety of reasons. You can also have litigation after a complaint with an anti-slap motion. We've talked about this in a lot of the cases I cover because a lot of what we've talked about, particularly recently, is defamation. and anti-slaps are generally a response to defamation. They can be responses to other suits if you're sued in a state where there is an anti-slap statute. SLAP stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. The purpose of anti-slap statutes in the jurisdictions where they are, and not every state has an anti-slap statute, but for the jurisdictions that do have them, the anti-slap is like, yo, stop, stop, don't slap me. Do not strategically litigate against my public participation. The anti-slap allows you to bring a terminating motion to the case before you even get into discovery. So the anti-slap stops the litigation. There's a two-prong analysis, and we've covered this in the cases where we've covered anti-slap motions. A two-prong analysis where in the first prong, the defendant who's being sued has to meet a burden, and then the burden shifts to the plaintiff to prove that they're likely to succeed. If the plaintiff meets that burden, then the case goes on. Carry on, my wayward son. If the plaintiff cannot meet that burden, the case is dismissed, it's terminated, it's done, overcooked, denied, dismissed with prejudice. You cannot bring these claims again. And in most states, you can then also get attorney's fees and sometimes sanctions and other costs and fees with regard to winning that um, anti-slap anti motion. So part of where you file a case can be strategic based on whether or not they have an anti-slap statute that could cause time and litigation before you even get to discovery. So it depends on the purpose of the complaint. If you want to get to discovery, if you need to get to get discovery, et cetera. Discoveries where you get to ask people a bunch of questions or have them sit for depositions, have them turn over documents. It's where you find out more about what they know. 
So complaint, pre-answer litigation, then you get an answer, and then you get into discovery and other litigation moving towards trial, depositions, and those sorts of things. We are at the answer stage in the Prince Andrew suit, and he has answered. This is mostly an answer full of general denials, and we're going to pull it up now. We're not going to get into the weeds on this because it's an answer with general denials. Like it's not, it's really not that big of a deal. And I will point out the few areas where Prince Andrew admits things and says, yes, I admit what's in that paragraph. And I'll tell you what's in those paragraphs of the complaint that have been admitted to. And at the end, it's a general, you know, preservation of all defenses, because if you don't preserve them, you lose it, use it or lose it at this stage. And then the um, general request for dismissals. I saw a lot of headlines that were like, Prince Andrew asked for it to be dismissed. And I'm like, what are you on about? Because he's already made a motion to dismiss and it was denied. And it was just the general request for dismissal at the end of this general denial and answer to the complaint. So defendant Prince Andrew, Duke of York, I guess we're still going by those titles. I mean, I don't really know how all that works. I know that he was kind of removed from acting in a royal capacity and using his royal highness, but I think this is still his title. I don't know. Or legal name, what have you. I'm not sure how that works. They also put in his name, aka Andrew Albert Christian Edwards, so that's in there too, in his personal capacity, which is lined out here. The nature of the action, and this is again going line by line along how the complaint looks. And for those of you not watching on the YouTubes, it's just line by line going through how the complaint looks, going paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three, et cetera, saying, basically, Prince Andrew denies the allegations in paragraph one. Prince Andrew lacks sufficient information to admit or deny the allegations in paragraph two. There's a lot of lacks sufficient uh, information here where Prince Andrew is saying, I don't know enough about those claims to admit or deny the allegations. It's a clean way of saying, I don't admit it, but I don't deny it. I need discovery. And that goes on for most of this answer. It's a general denial. In item seven, Prince Andrew denies the first clause in paragraph seven of the complaint. He lacks sufficient information to admit or deny the rest. So they've gone very specific line by line as they need to in a specific answer versus a, you know, the most general of denials where it's um, lacks sufficient information to answer, generally denies all claims and asserts these potential defenses. And then it's like a three sentence answer. This is more detailed than that because it is specifically responded to line by line. So for those of you who are like, but you said general denials. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> line by line. It's not a broad overall general denial, if that makes sense. Prince Andrew admits that he met Jeffrey Epstein in or around 1999, denies the remaining allegations, and then denies in paragraphs nine and 10, um, denies most, but then says the remainder of the paragraph amounts to legal conclusion to which no response is required. Ah, we're not responding. That is a conclusion. It then says that the parties, Prince Andrew disputes that Guffrey is domiciled in the state of Colorado and on that basis denies the allegations contained in paragraph 12 of the complaint. Paragraph 12 of the complaint, and I am now pulling up the complaint, and I will go back and forth a little bit. Paragraph 12 of the, play, uh, of the complaint says, Plaintiff Virginia Guffrey, Guffrey is an individual who is a citizen of the state of Colorado. Prince Andrew denies that, and this is going to come up. I think we're going to see more disputes about this 
And I'll tell you why in a minute. Prince Andrew admits paragraph 13, which is where he's um, where he's a resident. Paragraph 14 of the complaint consists of legal conclusions. And this is getting into jurisdiction and venue. Prince Andrew disputes and denies that the court has subject matter jurisdiction over this dispute on the grounds that Guffrey is not domiciled in Colorado. Paragraph 15 of the complaint consists of legal conclusions. To the extent a response is required, Prince Andrew denies. And then Prince Andrew denies again in the jurisdiction component. Prince Andrew is arguing in this and argues a bit later that this court, and this is filed in federal court for the Southern District of New York, alleging that the actions in part took place in New York, but that Virginia is a resident of the state of Colorado, even though she lives in Australia, and that Prince Andrew is a citizen of the United Kingdom. So I think we will see litigation coming in this saying, look, I've answered, but I am not ceding to jurisdiction. I've continued to dispute jurisdiction, and she is not a resident of Colorado. I have not availed myself, or Andrew saying, I have not availed myself of the jurisdiction in um, New York, or saying, even if I've availed myself of the jurisdiction of New York, this isn't the proper place for this party because the courts in the United States should have no interest in this dispute even though the actions took place in New York, no interest in this dispute because she is a, she is living in the uh, in Australia and he lives in the United Kingdom. We'll see what direction that goes in. It's it's alluded to in here, but we've also now answered the complaint after making a motion to dismiss. The motion to dismiss did not lean heavily into jurisdiction, so maybe we won't see it. As we get into the rest of the allegations, uh, Prince Andrew admits that he met Epstein in around 1999. And then admits a few other things, including um, paragraph 32 of the complaint and paragraph 34 of the complaint in part. So we're just going to go to paragraph 32 and 34 of the complaint. In paragraph 32 of the complaint, it states that in 2000, Epstein and Maxwell attended Prince Andrew's 40th birthday party. That same year, Prince Andrew threw Maxwell a birthday party in Sandingham, Sandringham, Sandingham, Sandingham, Sandingham. United Kingdom, and Epstein was among the guests. It's interesting because paragraph 33, it says Prince Andrew lacks sufficient information to admit or deny the allegations. But in paragraph 33, it says in 2006, Prince Andrew invited Epstein to his daughter's 18th birthday party, despite Epstein being charged with procuring a minor for prostitution only one month prior. Um, You could admit that in part, yes. Yes, I admit in part that Epstein was invited to the birthday party, but deny knowledge or don't have sufficient knowledge with regard to the rest. It's just interesting the way that that was, um, that that was, was it denied? Prince Andrew lacks sufficient information to admit or deny. Did, did you invite Epstein to the birthday party or not? And I wonder if it's going to be parsing like it was in the BBC interview. And in that BBC interview, he said, I invited Maxwell. And and I did not invite Epstein. I invited Maxwell and Epstein and Maxwell like, or Epstein came with Maxwell. So it might just be splitting hairs of, I don't recall inviting Jeffrey Epstein because I invited Galene Maxwell. And that might be the lack sufficient information to admit or deny because this is worded, the complaint is worded as um, Epstein and Maxwell or Prince Andrew invited Epstein to his daughter, not Maxwell and Epstein, or invited Maxwell who brought Epstein. And it really might be splitting hairs at that level. 
The answer says with regard to paragraph 34 that Prince Andrew admits the first sentence of paragraph 34 in the complaint. He lacks sufficient information to admit or deny any allegation pertaining to the authenticity of the BBC article referenced in paragraph 34. So here's paragraph 34 from the complaint. Prince Andrew has himself confirmed that he has been on Epstein's private plane, stayed at Epstein's private island, and stayed at Epstein's homes in Palm Beach, Florida, and New York, New York. See, and then the next pair, the next sentence is see Prince Andrew's links to Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein, BBC News, November 16th, 2019, available at, and then links to a BBC article. So it's, yes, we admit that we've been on Epstein's plane, the houses, et cetera, but we don't know about this article and we can't admit or deny, which truly is fair. Throughout the next section of the complaint, which is section C of the complaint, defendants allege sexual abuse of plaintiff. Most of it is denied. Some of it is lacks sufficient evidence to admit or deny. But in paragraph 44, it specifically states Prince Andrew denies the allegations contained in paragraph 44 of the complaint and denies he ever engaged in sexual acts with Gouffre. And then paragraph 44 states specifically, During each of the aforementioned incidents, plaintiff did not consent to engaging in sexual acts with Prince Andrew. And that is coming towards the end of that section of the complaint after the uh, now well-known photo of Prince Andrew with his arm around Virginia Guffrey with, um, or that appears to purport because he's denying that that's an authentic photo and with uh, Maxwell standing in the background, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, there's, list of allegations there that are all denied or lack information to admit or deny. But as regard to paragraph 44, he's very specific to say he denies that he ever engaged in sexual acts with Guffrey. He makes that denial several times. In the next section of the complaint, Prince Andrew admits the second clause of paragraph 50 of the complaint, lacks sufficient information to admit or deny the rest. Paragraph 50 says, In 2010, after Epstein had served his sentence and registered as a sex offender, Prince Andrew was photographed with Epstein in Central Park and stayed at Epstein's New York City mansion. And again, he is only admitting the second clause of the paragraph. The second clause, I think, being Prince Andrew was photographed with Epstein in Central Park and stayed at Epstein's New York City mansion. I think the first clause being the in 2010, after Epstein served his sentence and registered as a sex offender. The objection there probably being, I don't know if he registered as a sex offender. I mean, I have no knowledge that that was done or not done. And he, to that, may not actually have specific knowledge, but who knows? There are some more specific denials as we get later into the allegations regarding the relationship between Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein, including that Prince Andrew denies that he was a co-conspirator of Epstein or that Epstein trafficked girls to him and um, admits one part, the remainder of paragraph 59. So with regard to paragraph 59, it says Prince Andrew lacks sufficient information to admit or deny the allegation that there exists photographic evidence of his alleged meeting with Guffrey, Guffrey, and then admits the remainder of paragraph 59. Paragraph 59 saying, in November 2019, in response to this renewed scrutiny, Prince Andrew sat for an interview with BBC Newsnight. Prince Andrew stated that he did not regret his friendship with Epstein and that he had no recollection of meeting plaintiff despite photographic evidence to the contrary. So again, denying that that photo is authentic or real, but saying, yes, I did sit down for an interview with Newsnight. 
Denials are then made to the first and second cause of action. And then we get to affirmative defenses, affirmative defenses that preserve their rights. So even if these are things that may not be asserted down the road, it's a preservation of rights. The first one being lack of subject matter jurisdiction. And in the first affirmative defense, lack of subject matter jurisdiction, they state that the complaint should be dismissed because the court lacks subject matter jurisdiction over the action due to Guffrey's improper assertion of diversity jurisdiction, notwithstanding that she is a permanent resident of Australia and not um, domiciled in Colorado. This will come up, but it didn't come up much in the motion to dismiss, and I just wonder why not. Second affirmative defense is waiver and release, which gets specifically into the fact that Guffrey, they say, Guffrey, through her own actions, inactions, or other conduct, including without limitation, entering into the 2009 release agreement with Epstein containing a broad third-party release of her claims against Prince Andrew and others, waived the claims now asserted in the complaint. I don't know if that completely states the very confusing 2009 release agreement. It does not specifically name Prince Andrew by any means. And I don't know if it applies to him. And the court said they don't know if it applies to him, but that it's not enough. They haven't proven that it applies to them enough to dismiss. And again, I will reference you back to that episode, but it's again being brought up as an affirmative defense. And then we get into the other standard affirmative defenses, latches, damages contributed to by others. I mean, Epstein, consent, unclean hands, estoppel, statute of limitations, speculative damages, like we can't prove how much damages were, no right to exemplary or punitive damages, failure to state a claim, and additional affirmative defenses. The additional affirmative defense they put forth is that, quote, Prince Andrew presently has insufficient information upon which to form a belief as to whether he may have additional yet unstated affirmative defenses available. We need discovery, and then we want to modify if there's more. The prayer for relief is what the media kind of picked up on and ran with. And the prayer for relief in this answer is that the complaint and first and second causes of action be dismissed with prejudice, meaning they can't be filed again, that uh, Guffrey take nothing by her complaint and that the judgment be entered against Guffrey in favor of Prince Andrew and that Prince Andrew be granted such other and further relief as this court may deem just and proper, which is just really a standard answer. They're just isn't a lot there there. It's a fairly standard complaint asserting very standard defenses to civil claims and asserting the rights to have it dismissed with prejudice. So again, we will, this will continue on in litigation, but there was a motion for an evidentiary hearing that was ruled on that we are going to get into right now. This individual has brought a murderous conspiracy to the Prince Andrew Virginia Goofrey case, I believe because of the media attention based on this case, but I do not understand. There are very political assertions made in this complaint. There are murderous conspiracies made in this complaint and the judge ruled or in this motion and the judge ruled on it. I was kind of fascinated. You don't see a lot of the people just kind of jumping in that don't seem to have any place in a case at all very often. So I thought we would cover it because A, why not? And B, the judge actually made a ruling in on this on this wild motion by a pro se litigant. So here we go. 
Um, by the way, this litigant, this is not their first rodeo with the federal court system, and we will talk about why. Because, oh my, this is an emergency petition for an evidentiary hearing to review evidence that constitutional, with two L's, and statutorily requires granting a motion to dismiss with prejudice in this case. And if you are not watching me scroll along this, and it seems like I am saying things awkwardly, I am trying to read this as close to how it's written as possible. It is written by an individual, not a lawyer. And it is mm, conspiracy theoried. But they do make a point. This is their point. The point of the entire thing is the petitioner presents evidence. The defendant cannot receive a fair trial in the United States of America, defendant Prince Andrew. Because the U.S. Supreme Court and lower courts created by Congress do not support the U.S. Constitution as the supreme law of the United States of America. So essentially, hey, Defendant Prince Andrew can't get a fair trial because the courts are fucked. So you have to dismiss this case with prejudice. And they asked very clearly for a dismissal with prejudice. So they knew enough to say dismiss it with prejudice on behalf of Prince Andrew. But then the next heading says motive for murder. And this is where I was like, what happened here? And where did we go left? So the next, and they say there's exhibits, they're not attached, but motive for murder. And then after the motive for murder section, it just says commentary. So let's get into the motive for murder and the commentary on this motion saying that Prince Andrew cannot get a fair trial because the courts do not support the constitution. Exhibit one in Walter Lee, this individual's name is Walter Lee, brought by Mr. Walter Lee Pro Se. I forgot to say that earlier, but it will all make sense. Exhibit one, Walter Lee versus John Ashcroft, former U.S. District Judge Thomas P. Jackson, RIP. I'm reading that directly as it's written. Presided over this case where the petitioner legally challenged the constitutionality of the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore. The petitioner argued the seriousness of the alleged offenses warrant the attorney general to present the evidence to a grand jury IAW, the applicable and controlling law. Judge Jackson issued an order that essentially contained three conflicting rulings. First ruling, the case is frivolous and fails to say the claim. Well, second ruling, the success of plaintiff's claim necessarily requires the invalidation of the current presidency. I don't think that's a ruling. I think that was an assertion of that's what was being requested. And third, the legitimacy of the presidency of the United States is a moot point. So it sounds like this individual sued to undo the ruling in Bush versus Gore and to undo Bush as president. And that the judge said this is frivolous and it's moot. And the success requires an invalidation. And we're not doing that. I think there was some reading into that ruling. There's then a commentary section. And the commentary section starts going literally into commentary, saying that any case that challenges the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court and prompts a federal judge to rule the success of the case would invalidate the current presidency of the United States can never be legally considered frivolous. Nor does the case fail to state a claim when the petitioner has the right to petition the AG and the court to present this evidence to a grand jury. So. They wanted a grant, this individual wanted a grand jury to undo the Bush Gore ruling. This is part of Prince Andrew. This is filed in Prince Andrew's case. It then says, finally, any case challenging the legitimacy of the POTUS 
is never a moot point because the American people are entitled to a president who was legally and lawfully elected to sit as the president of the United States, IAW, the applicable controlling and governing positions of the U.S. Constitution, but does not cite them. We then get to Donald Trump. He says Donald Trump received his fill of going to into court after court after court, legally challenging the legitimacy of the Joe Biden presidency. I think they were challenging the electoral process and the votes, but I can see how we can distill it to this. I am not going to split hairs on that. There is more to split hairs on. Uh, proving a legal challenge to the legitimacy of the Biden presidency was not ruled to be frivolous or moot by any federal judge. The situations, though, are different. But I think the reasoning makes sense to me. They're saying, look, you told me my lawsuit about Bush Gore was frivolous, but Trump went to court and filed a whole bunch of legal challenges, and none of y'all said it was frivolous. Well, I don't know if nobody said it was frivolous. I don't know if every single court didn't say it was frivolous, but the argument then being none of those were ruled frivolous at, or or warranted moot. So because, because none of those were frivolous, therefore the previous suit couldn't be fr frivolous. And then he says, starry decisis anyone. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly how we use starry decisis, but like, B plus for effort on A, spelling stare decisis properly. And B, knowing that stare decisis means we stand by our things decided or stand by our precedent. But the precedent in the Trump lawsuits over the election in 2020, God, was it only 2020? I feel like it was 100 years ago and yesterday all at once. But the precedent in the Trump-Biden legal fights can't apply to the Bush-Gore legal fights. And what happened in the Bush-Gore legal fights with the Supreme Court and with this individual's ruling isn't stare decisis to the Trump-Biden rulings because they're different. But then, but then, but then it continues. He says, petitioner argued the inability of the U.S. Supreme Court to defeat the petitioner's argument statutorily proves that the U.S. Supreme Court is guilty of high treason and rebellion. So because the Supreme Court wouldn't hear his case, it proves that they can't hear his case because they couldn't defeat his case, and therefore they're not valid, and therefore they are guilty of high treason and rebellion. But wait, there's more. The next heading says, moment to digress, and then talks about different cases filed by this same litigant. But the heading moment to digress might need to become a part of the law nerd lexicon instead of I digress. I might just start saying moment to digress. And then lists the other cases. This individual is very angry about the Bush presidency, it seems, and filed three additional cases versus President Bush and President Bush's authority to become president. And if President Bush can't be the president, President Bush could not nominate any federal judges, could not sign any bills into law, and could not exercise any powers of president. And then all that should be undone. So there's that. It then says, all of the aforementioned cases were dismissed with prejudice because the U.S. Supreme Court could not then, nor can they today, defeat the merits of the argument. And I'm like, wait, what? So he's saying that the Supreme Court dismissed all of these petitions where he sued the president because they can't answer it, which is just not how that works. But, but 
He then says that due to the petitioner's ongoing litigation in various federal and state courts and the level of trepidation of the petitioner exhibited by federal and state judges in these courts, the petitioner wanted a record of the uh, wanted a record. The U.S. Constitution is supported as the supreme law of the United States of America by the judicial branch of the U.S. government. So he's explaining that he's trying to make a record that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and clearly believes that it's not being well followed. And then we get to the murder part. So there are additional lawsuits, including Lee versus the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona, so just suing the court. And Walter Lee versus Stephen Vandekamp, which says on 6 September 02, U.S. District Chief Judge John W. Sedwick of the United States District Court of the District of Alaska responded to my claim seeking $100 million, where I accused federal officials, U.S. Supreme Court and former U.S. District Judge Mary H. Mergia, currently on the Ninth Circuit, of plotting to kill me because of the merits of my claims. The inability of the U.S. Supreme Court to defeat petitioner's argument proves any person who petitioned the U.S. government court for a stay of their execution after the offending date and their petition was denied. And as a result, they were executed. They were then deprived of their right of due process, which includes going before a tribunal with the power to decide their case in which which is an act of first degree premeditated murder. They then go on to talk about the different governors who they believe are guilty then of first degree premeditated murder due to um, the death penalty being executed. They then quote, presumably one of the rulings that says now, well, he, cap he captioned it as we are digressing. Now consider the response to the U.S. government, consider the response of the U.S. government after being accused of plotting to commit the capital high crime of first degree murder, first degree premeditated murder. Quote, presumably from one of these cases. While Mr. Lee's claims of conspiracy to commit premeditated murder through the ruse of a court order strain credulity, even if they were true, his claims would not suffice to breach the barrier created by the doctrine of judicial immunity. That bulwark has been erected of necessity to protect an interest more important than redress in any particular case, society's interest in an independent and impartial judicial system. So the response by the court, which seems to have a little edge of snark, was, look, you, the claims of premeditated murder strain credulity. They strain all logic for us. But even if they were true, the court has judicial immunity. So I'm sorry that has been erected and you cannot come after the court for valid court orders. So then he contends that that alone proves his point that the courts refuse to affirm that the constitution is the supreme law of the land. There is another lawsuit from 03, then a lawsuit from 07. Then there is supposed to be exhibits that are not attached. And I'm very annoyed. I wanted to see them because there's a letter from President George W. Bush and a letter from President Barack Obama. And I'm deeply curious as to what those letters say. And then he says there is no response from Donald Trump or President Biden regarding these issues. I just want to know what the other president said. I'm now deeply curious and might end up down a rabbit hole. He then go on and says, for the record, which I think means he's asking for judicial notice, 
He talks about the fact that the judges must be sitting in the good behavior and possess the constitutional authority to exercise the sovereign judicial powers of the American people, which is fair. And then says, while sitting in good behavior is legally defined as the standard of conduct by which a judge is considered fit to continue their tenure in office, and that standard includes not committing any high crimes or misdemeanors, violation of Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, it then says, then you must prove you are not guilty of committing any high crime or misdemeanor, which I think misreads that part of the Constitution. But the point being, I think, is that the judges aren't following the law and therefore they're all in violation of the Constitution. Therefore, they're all guilty of committed high crimes. Therefore, they actually can't sit as judges, I think is the argument. And then it says federal questions. And look, this kind of threw me back to studying the Supreme Court rulings and to law school because there are bits and pieces of law in here. But federal questions are not you get to ask the federal government questions, though I appreciate the literal interpretation. I realize it might be helpful if we take a moment to talk about what is meant by federal question because federal question in this case, he asks six federal questions. But federal question is generally a a way to assert federal court jurisdiction if they don't have diversity jurisdiction, that they have federal question jurisdiction, like the matter is related to federal law. That's why it's in the federal court or you have diversity jurisdiction. That's what gives you subject matter jurisdiction. And I feel like I'm in Legally Blonde where it's like, well, did diversity matter jurisdiction exist in this case? And Vivian Kensington is like, no, it did not. So, So I am sitting here having law school flashbacks, which is part of why I wanted to read this. But the petitioner goes on and lists six federal questions. Um, And these are the federal questions they are asking the judge. It's it's almost like a deposition, like admit or deny. It's like interrogatories, admit or deny. So the first federal question is, do you support the U.S. Constitution and all rights, privileges, and immunities therein as the supreme law of the United States of AM? Not America, just of AM. And then the second question to the U.S. District Judge Kaplan, are you sitting in good behavior? Then have you deprived and or aided and abetted the deprivation of a person's life, liberty, or property without due process of law? Then do you recognize Prince Andrew as a full human being and a person entitled to due process and equal protection of the laws in this case? To which I imagine the judge is going, obviously. The fifth and sixth federal question, I don't know why they weren't broken out, but they are listed as one as a compound question. And they say, um, what does the U.S. Constitution say must happen next when the petitioner's Fifth and Seventh Amendment rights have been invoked, yet the district court, appellate court, and Supreme Court have refused to support the petitioner's rights to due process, equal protection of the laws in a public trial by jury, and yet those rights are preserved, and are the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court sitting in good behavior? So yeet them all is what I think the question is. And then it goes to the internal petition to President Joe Biden because they filed it with this court, and they're like, look, Your Honor, could you just forward this to President Biden because I have a petition to the president. And then it begins a presidential petition of several pages that starts with, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States and I will do the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then it says, President Biden, this is your oath of office. Yet you have repeatedly refused to support the supremacy of the U.S. Constitution, my civil rights, and the collective civil rights of the American people. 
this allows precedents to stand that say the government can murder people for exercising their First Amendment civil rights. And it goes on from there. It talks about exhausting judicial remedies, and it says that because of the things stated above, that the fact necessitates the House to impeach and the executive to prosecute the Supreme Court. Not the president. Don't impeach the president. He wants to impeach the Supreme and prosecute the Supreme Court and upon their conviction, overturn this and all other rulings impacted by their criminal behavior on the grounds that it violates the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution, which is not what the supremacy clause means. Maybe we need to do another video on the Constitution, but that's not what that means. But in this petition to dismiss the case against Prince Andrew, the petitioner is also asking the president of the United States to impeach and prosecute the entire Supreme Court. Okay. And then it goes after the governors that um, support or whose states still allow the death penalty, saying that allowing the death penalty without due process is first-degree premeditated murder, even though you the death penalty should not ever be executed without due process. Due process is how you get up to that point, but we might just not see eye to eye on that. Then, then he goes after Donald Trump, asks Biden to bring him in on the investigations into Donald Trump and says, what is the status of Donald Trump's tax audit? And I love that this is what he's petitioning for because I just do. Um, what is the status of Donald Trump's tax audit and why has USAG Garland not investigated the 10 instances laid out in the Mueller report where Donald Trump may be guilty of obstruction of justice and other high crimes and misdemeanors and issued a report confirming or denying them. However, there is an argument proving Donald Trump is guilty of tax evasion and the inability of the U.S. government to defeat my arguments invalidates Trump's entire presidency, which nullifies the tenure of every Article III judge he nominated and was confirmed by the Senate to include Supreme Court justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. So obtain the final report from the IRS regarding the audit of Donald Trump and give me a copy. He's like, look, I see the path clearly. I see the path. Here's the path. Trump can't be president. Therefore, it invalidates all of his judicial nominations. Therefore, undo that and please give me the copy of the IRS audit. I mean, you've got to respect the ask. It's a big ask and you've got to respect the ask. He then gets into an area I don't understand at all, but he gets into the Black Farmers Association and their case. I have, I have no idea what is going on with the Black Farmers Association and their case um, at all. And then talks about Bush versus Gore again and talking about the fact that it's hypocritical for the U.S. officials to talk about the human rights abuses and violations in other countries when you have in your possession a federal court order that says a person can be murdered by the government for exercising their First Amendment rights. Okay? He then says, and you know, I just, I appreciate the turn of phrase. After the, it's hypocritical, then says, then you people have the audacity to talk about American exceptionalism when you deprive the American people of their life, liberty, and property without due process of law. There, there is a whole, there is something that I'm missing, but then it gets into a question regarding Intel, the company, 
And I'm now going to rabbit hole this because I am fascinated. So let's discuss the 60 Minutes episode that the petitioner was watching that is in their petition to government, to President Biden, because I am curious. And maybe it's just because this motion reminds me of the letters I got when I was working for a congressman, because this is a lot of the mail that I opened. And it reminds me a lot of that. And maybe that's why I'm like, we just have to, we just have to appreciate the arguments that are being laid out here because A, I'm fascinated and B, I like the way the judge responds. So here we go. This is still in the petition. This is not in the petition for an evidentiary hearing. This is in the part of the evidentiary petition that is a petition to President Biden, just so we're following. And you're like, Emily, what? I know. I know. The other day, it says, I was watching a segment of 60 Minutes regarding Intel, all capitals, the company. I learned that in 2020, Intel made $78 billion. Well, $78 B dollars, I'm assuming billion. I think that's what the B means. But instead of taking this revenue and reinvesting it back into their company via research and development and upgrades to their facility, the leadership of Intel chose to line their pockets via stock buybacks. Uh, And this is at a time when Intel does not possess the level of intelligence necessary to produce the high-speed semiconductors needed by companies like Apple, Amazon, and the automotive industry, U.S. military, and Microsoft, et cetera. So not only do they shade Intel, but they accuse Intel's or allege and accuse Intel's um, higher-ups of lining their pockets, which, you know, in one paragraph is a lot to accomplish. But again, it's like Intel does not possess the intelligence necessary to produce high-speed semiconductors. The shade then says, and this I am reading directly, goes on to say, quote, then I find out part of the infrastructure bill includes $50 billion to Intel. I need to fact check that. I'm very curious. When Intel did not work for this $50 billion, nor did they earn this $50 billion, they were just given $50 billion of our taxes to do with what they should have done with the $78 billion in revenue they generated. This is a microcosm of what this current economic system cannot continue in its present form or of why this current economic system cannot continue in its present form. I am very curious. And then it says, now, because of the chronic stress of worrying about being murdered by the government, because they cannot defeat my arguments, I'm currently being treated for sleep apnea. I don't think sleep apnea is stress-induced, but I am not a doctor. And it says, therefore, I'm going to start sending my medical bills to you, since the federal government is responsible for bringing these medical ailments, and all I have to do is support my civil rights. The judge responds, but I'm very curious about Intel. Does the infrastructure bill give Intel $50 billion? Did Intel have a $78 billion profit? And where did it go? Is dude right? I want to know things. So I ask questions. Then they send this letter. Oh, wait, they cite Marbury versus Madison. Hold on. We got to get to why they cite Marbury versus Madison. They say that the petitioner is poor and there is a legal and public record in U.S. district courts across the United States attesting to this fact Due to the demonstrated level of ignorance and contempt of constitutional slash statutory U.S. laws exhibited by attorneys at every stage of their legal career, ignorance and contempt of the law, all lawyers exhibited by attorneys at every stage of their legal career, he says, I reserve the right to choose my own. Oh, you can do that. This is a civil case. You can go hire them. Because contrary to what you think you know about the law, every person who goes before a judge 
or other tribunal where their rights, privileges, and or immunities are asserted, they are entitled to competent legal counsel to ensure their rights. There's a caveat to that, but there's a like, okay, but it's not a criminal. You're not a criminal defendant. You've inserted yourself here. So that's not how that works, but all right. They say also the U.S. Constitution and U.S. law made pursuant to the U.S. Constitution establishes the final arbiters slash interpreters of constitutional statutory law is not a judge per Marbury versus Madison, but the people, IAW, the sovereignty and the due process clauses. Well, the judges interpret the law. The legislature writes the law. Finally, this is not about innocence or guilt of anyone, but supporting the supremacy of the United States Constitution. This is then sent to the district judge in the case that we are reading it from, President Joe Biden, the Honorable Boris Johnson, PM of the United Kingdom, Richard Sharp, Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the BBC, David Boyce, the attorney for Virginia Goofrey, and Andrew Brad Brettler, uh, I believe that is the attorney for Prince Andrew, or one of the attorneys for Prince Andrew. So it did go to the judge, the president, and PM Boris Johnson. The judge responded in a memo endorsement and said, the self-described pro se, quote, petitioner seeks dismissal of this case on the theory that the Supreme Court and the lower courts of the United States, quote, do not support the United States Constitution as the supreme law of the United States and makes other remarks that need not be summarized. The petitioner is not a party to this case and therefore has no right to seek dismissal or any other relief on any ground. Construing his papers as an application to intervene, the application is denied. He certainly has alleged nothing that would give him a right to intervene under Rule 24A, nor has he asserted anything that would permit the court, were it so minded, to permit him to intervene in the exercise of its discretion. Accordingly, the application is denied in all respects. Petitioner can rest assured that the defendant's able counsel are up to the task of advising any possible meritorious contention that they think warranted, so ordered January 31st, Judge Kaplan. I appreciate the judge's response. I wanted to read the whole thing because I so appreciated the judge's response. I think it was considered. I don't think it was, it was a little sassy, but I don't think it was snarky or mocking. I think the sassy part for me was petitioner can rest, rest assured that defendants able counsel are up to the task of advancing any possible meritorious contention. I think there was a little judge sass in there. But I think it was actually a measured response. And I appreciate it. This not only is this the kind of stuff that the, you know, that members of Congress and the Senate and judges and lawyers get, but it's not often that we see it, which is why I wanted to bring it up because there are people and and not just a few that feel that their rights are being trampled on and that they're not being heard. And then we see things like this filed in court. And I just appreciate a we got to talk about week A, the SAS, and B, the um, moment to digress of it all, but also the fact that the court gave a measured and reasoned response and was like, this is denied and this is why. And also counsels, counsels got it, petitioner. But it's a side of court we don't often see. And if you haven't worked for courts, if you haven't worked for legislatures, members of Congress, I don't know when you would see this. Um, which is part of why I brought it up, because this is part of what goes on in our court system, is that there are petitioners who feel that their rights are being very violated by the government and don't really know where to go with that because their claims aren't concisely expressed in one case. 
I think is the best way to say that. So I wanted to go over it because the judge's response is not glorious without going over it. And there we are. Thank you, Judge Kaplan, for giving us something to talk about and for being a respectful human and for saying, look, counsel's got it. Thank you. I also thought it was very interesting to learn about the lawyer's scorn for the law. And um, I want to know what you think. So, you know, over in the Law Nerds community, when I post this episode, let me know what you think. And on social media, let me know what you think. If you've made it this far in the comments, let me know what you think. The little scales of justice, like, thank you, judge. Because it, it was, we went on a journey there together and, um, and I, I thought it was interesting and important for those reasons. So let's raise a glass together and it is time to stay hydrated and mind our business. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. Thank you for another episode of the Emily show. I can't wait to be back with you for the next one. Oh yes. A week will come so fast because this episode will be so late. So thanks for that. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. And if you're sitting there thinking, Emily, why did you say that so awkwardly? Did you completely blank on what you were about to say? Yes. Yes, I did. It just happens sometimes. Appreciate you. I'll see you in the next one.